0: hi welcome back to uh, the podcast and thank you for listening we actually recorded our intro um that you were supposed to be hearing right now but it all got deleted so we're doing it again and hopefully we're also going to be less rambly this time so more direct to the point which totally I think you'll enjoy as a listener yeah we have a
1: lot uh, a lot to get through there's definitely been a lot that's happened since um, our last episode came out which is interesting because Um, we actually recorded the last one like a long time before we released it Mm -hmm. but it still almost kind of felt like they were almost part of like the same moment, right? Like we were leading up to some uh, uh, council meetings about the police budget and it was just in the aftermath of the whole like funding of the Chinatown Operations Center but you know, since since then like just in the couple weeks that it's been in, in October so far um there's you know been a lot of things that have uh, you know changed in our city and our province uh some important announcements and decisions and things that have come to light so yeah we definitely have a lot of stuff to get through um in this episode and we also have uh an interview Omar that you did with uh the director of the black uh class action lawsuit which um was just recently escalated to the United Nations so yeah that'll be later in the episode um and I think we just wanted to start off here with a follow up from um our last episode where we interviewed uh Michael Jans, uh current city councilor who's, you know, kind of known for uh taking a critical stance on the police. So if you haven't checked out that interview, um you definitely should. Uh we had some interesting, you know, discussion and critique of the interview afterwards. Um Omar, do you want to give uh,
0: a little recap? Yeah, for sure. Um, I had a conversation with Michael and we basically talked um, about the police, but um, what was kind of brought into contrast were a few points that um, were made during that conversation. So um, this theory of change that was brought up where um, there was an emphasis on People outside of council, like Black Lives Matter or anyone that's interested in seeing reform or you know systemic change, should be putting pressure on council to actually um, do their jobs. According to the interview that we had, there is also um, comments. That were made um, that were kind of, I guess, trying to alleviate some of the maybe like public perception around people who are asking for defunding the police. So Michael Jantz talked about how, you know, he has friends who are police or um, he's not, you know, anti-police. And in the interview, I kind of responded with how if you're anti or not, usually that doesn't make a difference in how... um, I guess the whole movement is painted in a negative light. Um, And uh, there was also a comment that was directed towards conservatives and how conservatives should be the ones advocating for police defunding because of the fiscal implications of giving police more and more money. So those are all things that really didn't resonate with me. And I tried my best to... I guess, open up the conversation when the interview is happening to address uh, the difference of opinion and how some of those things can be problematic or I think can lead to um, inaction or maybe the wrong action being taken. Um, And yeah, I think it's a good opportunity to um, just address that um, difference and I think be open and honest about how we not only want to, um, I think, highlight that, but also say that there are opportunities to, I think, evolve the conversation in the future and have more conversations. Um, but also, I think, um, put that criticism and that contrast on a pedestal and I think normalize it because. It can be taken personally, or it can be taken the wrong way. But I think ultimately, it's all in service of trying to reach a better place when it comes to um, the conversation around policing or, you know, defund the police. So I think that's kind of um, my take on the situation.
1: Yeah, totally. You know, we're not about uh, whatever backstabbing or <laughs> disrespecting our guests, but I think when you have someone on who is in a prominent position of power the whole point is to challenge them and i think what we're really trying to do here and or what you really try to do in your interviews is or what what you really do do well in your interviews is try and create more of just like an open space take the politics out of it take the um, performance out of it and i think what we were ultimately what we were most critical of coming out of that interview was just the fact that we almost couldn't really get there. Right. Like yeah. it, it almost just seemed, seemed like, you know, as a politician, maybe he's just so used to being in spaces where you kind of have to put on that like political mask and you have to hit those talking points. And, uh, more often than not, those political spaces are just dominated by very pro-institution, pro-status quo, uh, powerful voices. So you end up, you know, if you do have a view that's critical of those uh, critical of those institutions, you end up kind of like, you know, downplaying it or softening it by saying the, some of the things that he was saying, like, oh, you know, I'm not anti-police, I'm actually friendly with police. Yeah, we're trying to get away from all of that on this show. We just want to have more of an honest dialogue here and more of like a people-centered dialogue. So, anyways, yeah, I just wanted to clear a little bit of the air there. I guess you could say, um, you know, we would love to have him back on or or, or other uh, people in power. And again, that's the whole point is to is to challenge that and um, and especially with politicians that where we see like there there might be a little bit more of an opening, right? Like. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to get someone on who's just very, very Mm -hmm. pro-police. I mean, it might be revealing, but ultimately it's most productive, I think, to try and talk with someone who seems like they could be, uh, you know, sympathetic or understanding of your view and wants to respect that or wants to try and build that understanding. Um, So, uh, yeah, I guess look forward to more conversations like that in the future. And Omar, you, you you said you had a chance to meet up with, um, I guess someone who uh, was like on Michael Jansen's mailing list or something like that.
0: Yeah, someone who um, got sent the interview and um, listened to it. So we were able to, um, you know, get get a coffee, and they listened to the show as well. And I think what I got from that was they understood how things could be perceived as, you know, maybe hostile, but. Ultimately, they appreciated that pushback um, or at least like that critical um, conversation that we had at the end. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like it's there's always an opportunity, hopefully, on this um, platform to um, continue that process because it doesn't really end. That's the whole point of it. Right. It's like we want to see how these opinions can evolve um as these political decisions are made, right, and as the the, the power shifts between um, council and the police, um, yeah,
1: totally. And yeah, let you know if you if you uh, if you've got got feedback for us, um, you know, we'd always uh, love to hear it. Um, you can reach out to us at uh, you know any of our social media, and um, yeah, we just love to love to um, engage with that. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I guess, yeah, jumping into some of the big, uh, big items, um, there were uh, a couple uh, council meetings uh, about the police budget. Originally, a decision was supposed to be made earlier in the month, and then it was delayed. Uh, actually, why was it delayed, Omar? You said you were at that
0: meeting uh, or you were watching it. Ooh, I'm pretty sure it was delayed for about a week's time because of some confusion about the report and the conflict of interest or the perceived conflict of interest with the report that council received. So I'm pretty sure they had a few other questions that they wanted administration to answer, so they brought it back. Um, Well,
1: anyways, this whole, I guess, kind of process played out and ultimately, not really a surprise, but... The um city council voted to raise the police budget yet again by another seven million dollars. And uh I guess this is gonna this is kind of part of the whole like funding formula that we're getting back to. Um and yeah, this is uh um kind of just follows uh follows after a string of police budget increases that we've of course covered in this show but um, just to kind of recap we went into this year with a police budget of 384 million dollars and that was then raised in May um, by one million dollars so they decided they were going to raise it for 2023 by a million dollars and then uh, just a couple weeks after that in June is when they decided that they were going to Reinstate the funding formula, which um, Edmonton is the only city in Canada Canada. that has um, a funding formula. Um, And then at the same time, they raised the police budget by another $22 million. Um, And then in uh, August, as we covered in the last episode, they decided to fund the um, Healthy Streets uh, Chinatown Operations Center. So specifically, earmarking another four and a half million dollars for police out of that, and then with this uh, latest um, uh, latest seven million dollar increase, that brings the police budget now to I guess four hundred and eighteen point five million dollars uh, after we came into this year with um, a budget of three hundred and eighty four. So, yeah, that's um, that's a huge a huge increase.
0: It's a huge increase, but I feel like it's important to remember how councillors were talking when they were running for election. And Taproot Edmonton, which is a local publication um, that did some really good municipal election um, content last year, and they released a survey asking councillors, our future counselors, what they thought about um, police funding. So this question, um, what should be done about the police budget in Edmonton? And the answers that were given, I think, are um, really indicative of the shift that happens um, between engaging with maybe what politicians think public perception is when they're um, in need of public Mm. approval And then when they're in power, how do they actually utilize their power to, um, you know, defend their own interests or maybe what they think are the best interests uh, for the city? So in this question, what should be done about the police budget? The first question or the sorry, the first um, answer that was um, given, increase it as determined by the funding formula. Only two councillors agreed with an increase which is surprising right because we just talked about how their budget actually increased by seven million dollars and we're still sticking to the funding formula the funding formula was removed for a very short period of time and then now it's being brought back on and it's still going to be amended next year because there is a lot of confusion but the next answer that was given um is freeze it Freeze the funding, or sorry, freeze the police budget until it's in line with comparable cities. There you have um, four other counselors, and then we have another answer, which is um, decrease it somewhat. We have three counselors, and um, one counselor decided not to have a position on the issue at all, um, Andrew Knack. But this is all just to say that there's such a stark contrast between. Counselors that you could say are more honest and more direct about their um, unequivocal support for police, and then counselors that are willing to, I guess, play both sides, but in reality, they're not playing any side. They're just playing the police side because, like I said, we continue well, to they no, see... they're, they're playing us. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah, that's, that's a very accurate, Nicholas. Yeah, they're playing us to give the police millions more. Yeah, I
1: think... There's like that difference there between when you were um, a candidate and yeah, maybe wanting to like meet public opinion where it's at. And then once you're in power, how uh, insulated you then become from um, public opinion, kind of like what we just talked about in how uh, last episode's interview played out. Um, And you now kind of have more control to shape the narrative yourself, right? So, you know, something Andrew Knack said when they uh, they decided to go back to the funding formula was, oh, um, yeah, people have been have been calling for defunding the police. But I've also heard people okay. say that were that they want to give the police more money. So we're giving the police more money. And then um, here this time when they raise the police budget by. Uh, the most recent seven million um, he described the increase as the uh, least bad of of two options where the other option was rather than giving them a seven million dollar increase uh the other option was to i guess commit to increasing the budget every year for the next three years but it's like why are those the two options um you know if council is supposed to represent um represent public interest and when they were running These counselors, you know, uh, a lot of them said we should freeze it or decrease it. Actually, the majority of them said we should either freeze or decrease it. Um, Why are we pretending like the only two options are to either raise it again in a year where we've already raised it so much or to
0: uh, commit to raising it even more? And this is all happening under the... um I think, like, huge shadow cast by this, like, um, I I, I like to, like, think of it like a police gazebo, right? A police, like, tent of racism, of violence, and, um, you know anti-black profiling now that we've seen with this DNA DNA phenotyping uh, story that's gotten international headlines where the Edmonton police essentially paid an American company $1,700 to produce an image of a criminal uh, accused of a violent sexual assault. And there are no leads. The investigation has essentially reached its end, but as a last-ditch effort, what the Edmonton Police decided to do was publish a computerized um, image of a black person, a black man, um, along with a map of a supposed ancestry. All of this taken from DNA, and you can see on the African map these um, certain zones that are highlighted in Central Africa and West Africa. And um, you can see this... um, Problem areas, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? Problem areas. um, The heart of darkness, as, you know, some racists (laughs) like to say, right? Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's like um, Edmonton police really got a first place um, medal in racism. And just like, I think it was difficult to see some of the responses and how focused they were on debunking the science. So um, geneticists, we had a friend of the show, Bashir Muhammad, um, who's written a lot of really smart commentary about race in Edmonton. But I think he wrote a similar thing to what Vice wrote and a lot of other people, which is like a focus on why the science is faulty, why it's not reliable, um, and how this obviously is racist and, and profiles basically every black person, right? But I think that really ignores the fact that um, you know, it's it's the racism um, doesn't need the science to be right when um, scientists. Um, I say scientists with air quotes, but in the 16th century, when phrenology was being produced and created, when people were using calipers to measure black people's skulls, uh, creating um, ideas around uh, intelligence and IQ and race, um, uh, ranking, categorizing racial hierarchies, um, all of that was done under the guise of uh, science. And um, there could have been debates, and there definitely were debates at the time, um, that classified these things as ridiculous and inaccurate. But um, what they really are is racist. And um, I think one of the uh, potentially—something that would have been helpful in that conversation would have been maybe to focus on the context of the Edmonton police specifically— And their own history of anti-black racism and profiling and the impacts that that has on people in this city. I can tell you it's a pretty chilling effect and there are already so many um, negative um, interactions that are had in the public um, between black people um, and uh, everyone else. And this profiling just takes things um, and puts them on a different level.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, just looking back at the uh, the data and this is, you know, five years old now, but um, that uh, like the data that um, like Bashir and Black Lives Matter uh, published about um, how often Edmonton police uh, stop people. Right. Like, you know, you're um, 10 times more likely uh, than than a white person um, of being of being uh, carded if you're uh, if you're an indigenous woman. Um, You know, if you're if you're black, uh, you had a five times um, uh, uh, chance of chance of being carded. So it's well demonstrated uh, the um, the impact uh, and harm that uh, the Edmonton Police Services activities have on uh, black and indigenous communities. And yeah, the the focus on debunking the science um, kind of, uh, yeah, just ignores that context and is just ultimately, um, ultimately a wasted effort because it's, yeah, it was never about the scientific accuracy. The whole, you know, just DNA phenotyping jargon, it just needs to be legitimate enough that you have some kind of ground to stand on when you're making your hateful statement. Yeah. When you're putting out that, image of that computer generated image of a black guy that you know anyone could look at and say just represents any black person they know um you're you're doing that to shape public perception of black people you're doing that to uh to spread that um spread that misconception or promote that stereotype and uh, you're just trying to find some kind of something to lend just enough legitimacy to it that people feel like they need to engage with it. Mm-hmm. And the important thing is that the damage is done once they put that out. The damage is already done, right? Yeah. So uh, by by engaging with the scientific debate, it's uh, it's almost just... Being being fooled into thinking that that's gonna solve anything or that that's gonna undo any of uh, the damage, right? Mm-hmm. You'll you know the whole focus on 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 debunking, um, you know you'll kind of and and these are these are these are old old discussions too, right? Yeah, there's that um, you know it, it's it's not it's not like uh, it's not like this is the first time that the idea of like D- DNA phenotyping's been been brought up and you know there's of course just been like similar similar conversations around um, uh, like uh, surveillance and um, like using artificial intelligence to like recognize faces mm-hmm. um, it's, it's always like the same kinds of kinds of discussions and um, people always jump in to again engage and uh, a, a big thing I think is that you know the media is you know dominated by people in maybe in 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 more academic circles obviously people with like university education so people try and take more of that approach to it i guess but i'm i'm just like reminded of that um that uh cia playbook on like um sabotaging organizations that i think we've talked about on the show before but there's that one the one uh Uh, tip in there that says refer back to matters decided upon at the last meeting and attempt to reopen the question of the advisability of that decision so you know by reopening this debate you're kind of sucking everyone in uh you're you're sucking everyone into spending their energy debating the science while you've already done your uh done your intended work of again yeah spreading that spreading that stereotype um, spreading that uh like hateful um, idea uh, out there
0: and reinforcing that the police are the solution right mm-hmm. that that they're looking for um, you know they they're, they're going to bring whatever this um you know um stand in for black people is to to justice right yeah and the yeah, interesting, yeah you, you
1: you brought up uh, Bashir's um, op-ed there and The interesting thing is I feel like it was almost like cut off. Like he, the -hmm. whole thing almost feels like an intro and then it cuts off almost like right before it feels like it should have kind of gone into everything that we just talked about here. So I don't know if, I don't know if he maybe wrote actually something longer and that's just like the media bias being like, no, no, no. The more, the more substantive, sophisticated take Mm -hmm. here is to just focus on, you know refuting dna uh phenotyping rather than talking about um talking about uh like systemic racism or like institutional racism within um, edmonton police service um it seems almost to be something that they want to avoid so it wouldn't surprise me if they actually just cut that out and i feel like this also mirrors um mirrors the whole idea of the funding formula too right even just in in the name you know funding funding formula um, it's designed to make it sound more academic and yeah. uh, data backed and when you look at the criteria or actually what goes into that formula it is very arbitrary there's even just something in there that they call it in a whatever an efficiency factor yeah. or something and it's just completely arbitrary mm-hmm. so really they just decide whatever they want to raise it. Um, there's a side, you know, uh, whatever they want to set that as and whatever they want to raise the police budget to. Um, but by calling it a funding formula, you kind of create the image that it's based on science and it's uh, academically sound and there's nothing to see
0: here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's no valid critique of something that's scientific or empirical, right? When we know that it's constructed with... Um, You know, clear aims and clear goals and um, its function reflects, um, yeah, this political system's goals and and, and its aims. Um, So I I think, sorry, just to, I guess just to like
1: wrap it up there, we're not, you know, just so we're not just saying saying what happened and all of that. I think um, if there's a takeaway here, it's to not... um, yeah, not, not get sucked into the kind of more petty discussions um, around whether it's, you know, debunking debunking DNA phenotyping in a specific use case or going into whether there's a conflict of interest in, like, that specific report provided to um, mm-hmm. the police yeah. commission. It's just to kind of keep keep focusing on, like, who's in power making these decisions? What are, like, how are they continuing to reinforce the status quo and what opportunity is there to hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. Because it's not... It doesn't absolve, like, city council of responsibility uh, if they were shown a, you know, a uh, dishonest report or if specific science that was... um, used by the edmonton police service was was debunked ultimately they're still responsible for making what decisions are going to be uh in the best interests of um keeping people safe and keeping people safe from harmful institutions like like the police
0: no absolutely um and so we're i had a conversation today for the podcast about um this black action lawsuit um, that's taking place right now in Ontario, uh, Toronto, with a lot of um, federal workers, black federal workers, who filed in 2020 against the Canadian government because of um, overt and covert discrimination and racism that they faced at work. So... This lawsuit has now been escalated to the United Nations with the help of Amnesty International because the Canadian government refuses to um, really engage on an honest level. So they've decided to stall repeatedly and when they're not stalling, they've insisted on removing the case from the justice system towards arbitration or towards means that are easier to control the results of. Um, They've promised uh, uh, black mental health resources that haven't been delivered yet. Um, So this is a really egregious situation um, that is impacting black workers um, across the country. So um, it was great to get the opportunity to speak with um, Nicholas Marcus Thompson, who's the executive director. Of the Black Class Action Secretariat. Um, So I hope you enjoy the interview, and um, me and Nicholas will be back after to recap and talk about a few other things. Yeah. He's talking about, you're talking about. I guess (laughs) I should have clarified. Anyways, clarify. So we are going to
1: talk with Nicholas, and then we'll be back. And then I'll be back, yeah. (laughs)
0: To, to start off our conversation, um, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Um, for listeners who may not be familiar with the Black Class Action Secretariat and the work that you do, Nicholas, can you let us know who you are and, and what the class action lawsuit is all about?
2: So we are a nonprofit organization that is working to eliminate systemic discrimination throughout um, uh, Canadian uh, life. We're presently focused on Canada's public service, the federal public sector, which is the largest uh, employer uh, in Canada. We're organized um, and our members are mostly uh, public uh, service employees, retired and uh, present public service employees. So, we're really seeking to dismantle and eliminate centuries old barriers that have uh, prevented uh, Black Canadians from fully participating in uh, Canadian uh, life.
0: And from your own personal experience, I read that you were working with the federal government. And um, as part of your job, I think you were doing um, collections, if I'm not mistaken and um, you were basically told to um, you know, clean the office, do things that weren't, that weren't at the level that you were hired for. Can you explain um, what discrimination in the workplace looks like and feels like for black people and what that experience was like for you personally?
2: Well, the, what does black, uh, what does discrimination look like for black people in the public service? Um, my answer to that would be uh, it uh, discrimination operates in a very um, covert way in Canada's public service today, where it is disguised by procedures, uh, it is supported by policies and laws. Um, uh, for example, within the public service, if one was to um, Uh, apply for a job, there's a lot of discretionary uh, uh, powers that um, uh, employers can apply that would result in you being excluded and who they want being selected. And they would be able to say, well, we've followed the process. Or uh, I'll give you one example uh, where I was not uh, selected for a staffing process and um during that uh, i had done everything i had submitted my reference and the team leader who conducted my my reference check um uh, denied me based on items that were never brought to my attention before and i i applied for recourse and during that recourse period the 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 employer themselves determined that i was treated arbitrarily that there is no basis to exclude me, but by the time you get back around to it, the process already completed. They've already hired who they wanted to, and there's no recourse really left or resolution really left um, uh, for you there, right? So there's a variety. At, at, it it mostly works in the public service. Rather, people might think, well, it's about calling somebody the n word or. Um, While you may have instances of racial slurs happening in the workplace, the discrimination really happens with those who uh, wield the power um, uh, over you. Uh, And that is used in the procedures and particularly in the staffing processes, right? If they want to develop you, they'll come and tell you, well, we want to develop you and we're going to put out a poster We're going to be asking for these things. We know you have these things um, and you're the one who, we're going to tailor this in a way that you're the only one who can benefit from that, right? If that makes any sense. Um, So there's all of these staffing, uh, discretionary staffing measures that allows the employer to select who they want. And you essentially have, you can't prove anything they followed whatever the procedure procedures were, um, but when you look at it at a systemic level, that's where you see. But wait a minute, how come they're only hiring and promoting and supporting this one group of people, and excluding a lot of these groups, particularly black group, the black group? When you look at the entire picture and you see what the leadership looks like and who's being appointed. Then you realize, but wait a minute, so nobody else is good enough? So only white employees are qualified, uh, have the skills and experience um, and education for management and leadership positions? Um, So it leads you with these questions, and and that's where you realize that um, something is fundamentally um, flawed within the system once these
0: realizations start really sinking in um, you, we, I think black people have known that this has been happening for, for decades, for, for as long as settlers have been in, in this Canada, in Canada, basically. So what, what was the process like um, from going from realization to, to action now where things are being elevated even past Canada's justice system, and going to the United Nations now even, and in the international community, because of how difficult things have become um, in Canada?
2: Well, to to put this into historical context, Black people have been in Canada for 400 years. Um, It's one of the groups that have been here uh, for a very long time, uh, and throughout time, throughout um, the passage of time, Black people have endured discrimination for centuries, um, starting with being brought to, to, to Canada um, uh, as part of the transatlantic slave trade sold through slavery. Uh, the free labor of Black people were used to help build early Canada. Um, then when slavery was abolished, Black people still, still could not fully participate through Um, had to own property and of course coming from slavery you can't own property so um, another systemic way to exclude black people um, by following the law again and if we look back to those early times we'll see how those systems were used. And back then, um, if we go back to the First World War, when Black people were trying to serve in the First World War, and they were told, well, this is a white man's war. We do not want Black people, uh, we do not want to serve alongside Black people. Back then, the racism was very uh, overt uh, and very well known. We do not want you based on your skin color. And black people pushed back and was eventually allowed to form a black battalion and they could only do construction, cutting down the trees and all of these different things. Uh, very important work still, defusing landmines, uh, their efforts to in the war was, um, uh, you know, uh, it contributed significantly to the war efforts. Uh, when the war finished, they received nothing. They didn't get any pensions. They didn't get any homecoming. And when we compare that uh, over 100 years later, Black public servants are at the bottom, just like the Black Battalion, disregarded, overlooked, bypassed, um, treated inhumanely. And then Black people today retire, broken uh, with nothing really to show after serving 50 years, 40 years, 30 years, serving Canadians. It's the same comparison. Uh, it's just that you you likely won't be called the N-word to your face. But those prejudices, those bias, um, and it's very conscious bias, very conscious bias. Um, because to exclude somebody, you have to think about it. You have to think carefully Uh, It's premeditated. You think, well, this person is going to be better than this. This group is considered a lazy group. This group is considered a hardworking group. You're thinking about this. It's very conscious. But the idea of unconscious bias is is an excuse to, um, you know, to not take responsibility on the issue. So... We're dealing with centuries old systems of oppression designed to exclude Black people. If we go back to the, the slavery, excuse me, if we go back to the, the history of how these institutions were created and um, how it was created to exclude Black people. So they're working very well over 100 years later. That's how they were intended to. Have. Uh, work, and it's still carrying out those functions centuries later. Um, When we talk about the breaking point, um, uh, for me, uh, in starting this particular movement uh, for accountability and justice happened, uh, I had been pushing for years uh, with the employer as a union president on uh, addressing these issues. What I noticed in my workplace was that there were a few Black employees. Um, I, I represent just about 1,000 workers in Toronto. And I noticed that there was just about 15 Black people out of 1,000 workers that were employed within that office. And um, there was none in management, none in the executive ranks. Uh, but there were racialized people. They were hiring a lot of racialized people, which was really good, Um and there were a lot of racialized people in the professional programs, um, in the auditing jobs. Uh, there are a lot of racialized people in the uh, management and executive ranks uh, within my office. And, and I was pushing to have uh, more diversity and, and to utilize some of that discretionary staffing powers to target the exclusion, the disproportionate exclusion of Black employees. So to create staffing processes that would um, uh, target black employees to develop them to uh, so that when staffing processes come out at a higher level, they would have had some experience acting in that at that level to qualify to even apply. Presently, uh, or during that time, black employees did not have the experience to even apply for that position because they're not getting the opportunity to act or to develop the skills or the experience to qualify for even applying. And at the time, the employer said, well, well, Nicholas, that would be discriminatory if we did that. It would be discriminatory to white employees. Because then white employees could come and say, well, how come there isn't a poster that says white uh, targeting white employees? And it was just ridiculous. Sam. And um, when George Floyd happened, I was leading protests in Toronto, and we were in Markham and Ottawa. And, uh, you know, when I saw the level of support, it it had me thinking, like, um, if we have all of this support, like, why isn't anything really changing for us? And I, I really thought about it. And I, my conclusion was, if we don't take some type of action to bring about meaningful change now, we will never have the opportunity to do so, um, perhaps ever again, especially when we have global support at this time. And I thought about it, and I thought about how Black people were treated uh, in employment, and not just in the federal government we're talking about everywhere. It's, it's an issue that exists in the private sector and we've seen in media uh, what happened with Trisha Juggernaut and how she's been treated by Bell um, uh, after 11 years in that position. And her story is actually a very common for black women in the public service. Black women uh, who are facing an additional barrier being a woman and then being black. And then there's the intersectional aspects of it. Some might belong to um, the LGBTQ community. Some might be disabled. Um, So you have all of those intersectional aspects on top of being black uh, that really adds uh, additional barriers to um, uh, that exclusion. That breaking point really culminated around the George Floyd era and um, wanting to take action that would have a lasting impact because the protests, I thought, would end, and it did. And then we we go back to um, when we look at how George Floyd happened and the thousands that came about, we had to, um, to do something that was meaningful, that would have a significant impact today and for the future generation. And I, I want to make that very clear. We're not fighting for the future generation alone. We're fighting for today. Today, we shouldn't have to wait another generation for change. Many people have said to me, Nicholas, yes, what you're doing is great, and, and the next gen- we cannot allow the next generation to endure this. Well, I'm saying we cannot allow this generation to endure this. Why must my generation go through a hundred years of trauma and then we have to wait uh for the next for change to come another hundred years, or for the prime minister to apologize to public servants a hundred years from now with nothing meaningful changing. So we've decided to utilize the justice system um to attempt to force change. The public service will not change on its own. I can tell you that um, uh, because it is those who are wielding that power, those who have benefited from that discrimination, those who have thrived from it, uh, is now responsible for changing it. And they will only do the bare minimum, and they will only do whatever is required to check that box. But any tangible action that would really impact Black people in the public service, it will not uh, voluntarily um, come. Right now and over the past two years, we're hearing a lot of, we're listening and we're learning and we know about the harms and, and we're working to do this. But nothing is changing for Black people who are employed. And that's why we're escalating and we're continuing to escalate our fight because Canada is not serious about addressing this issue.
0: On on the point that you made um, about this disproportionately affecting black women, I think I heard in one of your um, events that it's 70% of the black class action lawsuit is women. So this is um, not only a black issue. Obviously, it's also impacting women very heavily. And you mentioned the pushback you're getting from the federal government. Um, can you can you explain to listeners what's going on um, with the they're reviewing their own data, the constant delays, and and how this has led to working with Amnesty International to go to the United Nations?
2: Well, let's be very clear here. The government has known this issue existed for decades because it has had the data. It has had reports um, indicating, showing that Black people were at the entry-level positions for a very long time, were not being promoted. They have known uh, who were in their executive ranks for a very long time, and... um, Uh, And also, to be very clear, the government has acknowledged that that exclusion has caused harm to workers and that for too many Black people, discrimination is a reality Um, and that the pain and suffering that it causes is real. Government continues to say this. So they're not challenging what we have said and what workers have said. They're acknowledging it and saying that they're committing to addressing it. The disconnect is is that no meaningful action is happening to address that issue. And, for example, they've talked about creating a Black mental health fund that we've called for. And the, the, the issue really is that Black, particularly Black women, are serving this country for decades after 30 years, they're badly wounded, um, being excluded, denied over and over for promotional opportunities, being asked to train others. You're good enough to train others. You might get an opportunity to act in a, in a higher position for a short period of time, but you will never be permanently appointed to that position. You you, you hear racial slurs in the workplace, or you're treated at... at differently based on your race. Um, And then you go to EAP, Employee Assistance Program, and you tell them what you're experiencing in the workplace. And they really, you know, they tell you that it's your perception that you're being discriminated against. Well, what do you do at that point? You go to the union, union doesn't help you. You go to EAP, they don't help you. Uh, And the workplace is is the perpetrator. So workers have nowhere to turn to and have to learn to to cope with all of that trauma for decades. Um, So it is really, you know, when we're talking about the impacts on workers, the government is fully aware of the problem. They know it exists. Um, They know what needs to happen, but they're not implementing it. So we've called for a mental health program. They say they're creating it, and black workers are at the bottom of that program, and the white executives are at the top of that program. So they're replicating the same failed structures, or it was designed that way, so maybe it's that same continued uh, design of having blacks uh, doing the, the work at the bottom and having to fight to convince white folks at the top that this is the program that's needed. It's not gonna get anywhere very slowly. When would that ever be implemented? And where are the white black executives at the top giving direction? Those with the lived experience that could really help to steer this program. Why does it always have to be through a white lens or a colonizer lens to be very clear? Um I I in order to create the solutions that needed there has to be black leadership um uh not you taking our input and then you deciding on what that would look like and that's why we have been able to engage amnesty international they are the premier human rights body um uh, internationally, across across the globe, and for them who champion, they champion human rights in some really bad countries, and calls out on governments across the globe to um, on on human rights violations, and for them to call out Canada on human rights violations of Black people, it's nothing short of atrocious and and shameful for this country. This first world-leading country to be called out for human rights violations. And it's something that that, that must be addressed. We're committed to addressing it. And ultimately, um, we're not an enemy of Canada. We want to make Canada a better place. We want to ensure that we can all participate. And just like the civil, right, civil rights movement, when rights were won for Black and people, all underrepresented groups benefited from that fight. And they are today the same way.
0: No, I think that's a very good point, And I think it, it really illustrates what's at the core of, of this fight. So for, from your perspective, um, what do you think is going to be happening next for the lawsuit and, and for the uh, complaint to the United Nations, but also... Um, for workers um, that are a part of your um, a part of your movement, um, what do you think is going to be next?
2: Well, one, what we're doing is empowering workers, right? And many are coming forward uh, to share their stories, not just in the public service but outside too. Um, uh, we're providing a platform that's empowering to women, that's giving women a voice to come forward and say this happened to me and I'm not going to accept that anymore. So um, in terms of what's next is um, we're continuing to build a national and international uh, platform to um, advocate on this issue. Um, As for the legal matter, the government is seeking to dismiss that after acknowledging that there's a problem and after um, saying there's harms and after saying we're working to fix it, they're seeking to dismiss uh, the action in the court saying that the court is not the right forum. It should go back to the grievance process that the employer controls. Um, uh, it should go back to arbitration that the union is the gatekeeper too. It should go back to these systems that you've acknowledged uh, are broken, that you've acknowledged, Uh, Needs fixing. It should go back um, to the Canadian Human Rights Commission, which has acknowledged that they have a a systemic discrimination problem. It should go back to that commission whose workers are saying they're facing discrimination within the commission. Um, It should go back to those broken systems that workers have not been able to get justice from uh, for decades. That's what the federal government is saying to the workers, those who have been traumatized and treated horribly for decades. Government wants them to go back to that system. So that's where we're at with the legal framework. Um, we are hoping that the court uh, will reject uh, those um assertions and with regards to uh the uh human rights um uh, the complaint with the united nations uh we're going to continue uh meeting country after country and we're going to let the world know how canada um treats black people we're going to let the world know how canada treats black people and we're going to ask the international community to hold Canada to account. Um, this complaint uh, with the UN will eventually, the, the, um, the UN will have to ask Canada to um, respond to it. And eventually, if they see fit, they may come to conduct an investigation in Canada which Canada can allow or deny them entry. We'll see how that um, progresses. But in the meantime, we will use our voice. We will talk to every athlete. We will talk to every celebrity. We will talk to every um, every, uh, political leader, every politician. And whenever we get the opportunity, we will let the world know how um, uh, Canada's track records and human rights and the violation they've already uh, you know, it's well known of the human rights violations of indigenous people. And um we will let the world know um how Canada has treated and continues to treat Black people. And when Canada is finally ready to come to the table, we'll be there as a willing participant to um to shape and to help change the course that uh, Canada has taken for a very, very long time.
0: Thank you so much for that great answer. And to wrap it up, how can listeners support you and your movement if they want to? Uh, Are there any places that they can go to or any other ways that they can support?
2: Sure, there's a lot of um, Um, simple things that um, Canadians can do uh, to support. And I I want to emphasize this fight is not just, uh, you know, for black people. We're really fighting for the soul of this nation here uh, on the ugly issue of discrimination um, that really seeks to uphold white supremacy while excluding everyone else, particularly black people. And what the end result is... Um, if everyone gets an an equal opportunity um, to participate, then we're then we're going to make this country a better place for everyone. We're going to have a more productive public service. That means Canadians are going to get um, uh, uh, more uh, productive public service and the services that they receive. Uh, if we have employees who are coming to work in almost full capacity and not injured and operating at forty percent, the outcome. Uh, two Canadians are going to be greater, much greater. Um, So we are fighting for the soul of this nation um, as it pertains to this issue. And it's everyone's fight from the dinner table to the soccer field, uh, to the classroom, to the church, to the mosque, uh, to the temple, wherever it is, these issues um, come up and using your voice to speak out on these issues um, is, is a great starting point. And if you visit blackclassaction.ca, we have a petition that's there. Um, a lot of our public advocacy requires um, funds, a lot of funds. Um, so we have started a uh, members of the public can make a donation. Organizations can make a donations, um, as well as individual donations. Uh, we have a merchandise store. You can purchase merchandise from there. You can follow us on social media. You can help amplify our messaging. You can retweet um, uh, or share a post on Facebook or Instagram uh, or TikTok. Uh, all of these little things. Um, contributes to filling the bucket, um, so to speak.
0: Sweet. what did you think of that, uh, interview? I think it was really, um, probably one of my best interviews I've done from the perspective of trying to platform someone or a group of people that are, um, Doing very, very relevant work to potentially, um, you know, find justice for black people or, you know, improve the lives of black workers. So it was it was really cool to um, not only be able to understand the situation and know what led up to and what's happening now at the lawsuit, but also... Um, you know really understand what they're fighting for and and why they're taking this to the international community so um, these issues have um, impacted so many people I know they've impacted me on a on a much smaller level um, because I'm pretty young I'm just starting Um, but um, yeah really enjoyed the conversation Mm -hmm.
1: yeah I guess was there anything that you thought was unexpected um, or that you want to like I don't know, scrutinize or dive deeper into?
0: Um, I feel like there's definitely a tendency to, um, I guess maybe like create an idea or an image of what we as uh, black people are. I'm, I'm speaking about this specific part in the interview where the military is brought up in this battalion in World War One, and it does kind of feel like um, there's a bit of like respectability politics going on, or um, at least um, like a model minority um, situation by comparing um, the struggle of federal workers today to the struggle of um, these black soldiers that were fighting in World War One and didn't receive the respect or the um, material um, return that they expected or that they deserved. Um, so, I, I you know personally, I think that we we don't need to be respectable as black people to um, receive justice, to be given. Um, opportunities um, to succeed, whatever that means um, in this um, culture. So I I would say that was one point that definitely um, didn't resonate with me that much. But um, outside of that, I think, um, you know, most of the conversation and most of the things that were brought up were, were pretty solid, yeah.
1: I think there's interesting uh, conundrums there almost. I think when you were, you know, I guess even the idea of, you know, civil rights and, um, and yeah, you know, uh, a lawsuit like this, um, I don't know, maybe this is not, not the right way to view it, but I guess it's almost inherently kind of, uh, the, the ask is kind of centered around acceptance into like a, a white system. So you, you know, whether the acceptance into that system is, is just is, is just, you know, for, for the idea of, you know, um, respect as, as a human being, there's an aspect of it that inherently also upholds that uh, like the values of that system. Um, and then I guess the other the other kind of conundrum there is if you're trying to talk about discrimination and you're trying to talk about,, um, you know, uh, racial injustices, especially in the workplace, which is,, um, which is, you know, uh, a microcosm of that that system I was just talking about, almost the only way you can even prove that there is, discrimination in in that system and according to those rules is if in the pursuit of those values you were you know clearly un- unfairly unfairly denied right like oh uh, yeah you yeah. kind of um mm-hmm. you almost have to you you have to be the mind be the model minority and then uh and then rejected or denied in order to in order to prove that that there is discrimination there, otherwise it's just chalked up to well, that meritocracy, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's why I've moved towards, you know, embracing um, abolition and just like realizing, yeah. <laughs> what, you know, like I, I say that really easily, but I think you know it, it, there's a lot of merit in understanding that yeah we have to. Really take it all apart. That we can't build a build a new house with the master's tools, you know. As the cliche kind of yeah. goes, I guess. And well, I like what yeah.
1: he was saying at the in in the interview about just um almost yeah destroying that fake reputation that Canada has exactly um, and yeah. yeah I mean that absolutely should be should be shattered. Um, it doesn't do anything other than shield our uh our systems and um and our uh you know um oppressors yeah. um from facing any kind of uh on uh yeah honest accountability right
0: mm-hmm. no absolutely
1: yeah and something that uh you, know, you mentioned the whole listening and learning thing <laughs> um i was just thinking back to that um like sarah hamilton tweet Banger. Uh, Amazing yeah, tweet. it was, uh, and we've, we've like, you know, posted this before cause she's, you know, this one counselor who, uh, I, I think she was on the police commission, right? At one point, I, yeah. I, I think so. I, Anyways, but it was earlier, yeah, she's, but like this year, like earlier this year, she was, you know, talking about why the funding formula actually makes the police more accountable and then in in the last you know debates around the Chinatown Center, she was like, oh you know even though we don't all agree, we've had like robust debate here, and that's that's the main that's the main thing. Um, but then <laughs> uh, this thing that she tweeted um, in 2020 was like, oh I'll be listening and learning, or I'm I'm listening and learning and working to do better. Uh, march on, Yeg. I'll be in your ranks tonight. Um, so, you know, just really obviously interesting here to see that uh, that that performative allyship in 2020 and then, of course, you know, just speaking in favor of like the police funding formula and, and indeed trying to gaslight uh, people into thinking that this is actually uh, good for them and going to lead to more accountability. Same kind of thing uh, where, you know, um, uh, 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 Nicholas talks about uh, it just feels awkward to say that. Um, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he like, talks about how, um, y- you know, after 2020, seeing, seeing, like, Justin Trudeau, Neil, and the irony there, because he's the prime minister. And, um, but same kind of thing where there's that performative allyship. And then now it's, like, just so out in the open, they're literally trying to dismiss this this uh, case or have it, have it thrown out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Um, I guess it shows how universal um, these feelings among like our our white leaders are. It's like uh, pretty pretty universal tactics, at least like across Canada. Um, doesn't matter if it's city council in Edmonton, municipal, or uh, you know the feds in Ottawa. Um, they're moving the same. Yeah. <laughs> Truly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, it'll be yeah. It's in, it'll be interesting to keep up to date with um, how this lawsuit progresses and uh, if that kind of um, I don't know reckoning or challenge to uh, Canada's international reputation uh, ever really does come or with with the kind of force that um, you know he was talking about.
0: Uh, yeah. In well. Um, look forward to. I don't know when this episode is going to come out, but um, I was told that there's going to be some, you know, pretty big okay. press conferences in, um, you know, a pretty major American city with some big American civil rights leaders. So, um, yeah, keep your eye out. These, um, this movement, this group is going to keep doing a lot of um, important work.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, okay, just before we wrap up here, uh, just wanted to get. So your thoughts on our new premiere?
0: Oh man, Daniel Smith is a very special person um, with a special ability um, to self-destruct, and I'm speaking from personal experience as someone with a lot of self-destructive tendencies. But um, would you say she's self-destructing? I <sighs> like at like now. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say now, but I feel like it's it's interesting because. I feel like all everything that she said so far is like directly pandering and targeted towards you know her base of support and people who will listen to things like oh yeah unvaccinated people are the most persecuted group or um the comments about how you know Russia and Ukraine needs to the war there needs to be settled um but yeah, hold I on. She, what
1: did I, what did she say? Okay, sorry, I keep interrupting. Oh what no, it's fine. About? Yeah,
0: she said, um, I I I don't want to, you know, paraphrase and get it wrong. But I think essentially what it boils down to is that the situation in Russia, or sorry, the situation in Ukraine needs to be uh, needs to end in negotiation, and we can't continue to escalate. Nuclear war is not an option. So really. These are pretty reasonable things yeah. to say. Like, I was going to say, do you disagree? I don't much? disagree with anything that she's saying at all, actually. I feel like what she said, obviously, on, on Ukraine and yeah. about this conflict <laughs> very specifically, I do think that the NDP is being strategic to create a, pol- a political issue out of this, especially in Alberta with our Ukrainian population, trying to hedge... As many votes as they can away from the UCP into their own arms with a population that they already know is probably leaning conservative because their NDP is trying to be strategic. But um it's sad to see how instead of focusing on why Danielle Smith is one of the worst politicians alberta has ever produced because of how indebted she is to uh big business how Mm. focused she is on austerity and cutting government completely um her you know conspiratorial kind of thinking and like um really misguided ideas like investing in uh cryptocurrency and um just like placing a lot of um, unproven um, health advice over um, healthcare experts. And that's not to say that I'm um, someone who diverts to experts or thinks that um, we need to put our systems into their hands. But yeah, what Smith is offering isn't good. But the alternative and the response to Um, What she's saying by liberals, Um, I'm thinking of that tweet by Don Iverson where it's um, this proud statement that we won't be embarrassed to be Albertans because of Smith and that we have to defend our province against anyone who tarnishes its reputation um, I think that's super pathetic and that yeah. there's 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 no Alberta worth defending um, if we don't actually take any concrete steps to make workers' lives any better. And all we do is just spout rhetoric, give more money to police. And then when conservatives make the world think that we're racist, we double down and try to defend our um you know identity or you know the label of being from alberta kind of sucks i feel like is pretty lame yeah
1: yeah that's that's super lame especially when um yeah when you know right after we've you know raised the police budget so many times this whole dna phenotyping thing comes out and then to say uh that you know don ivison the originator of the like funding formula for the, um, like, yeah. Edmonton police to say, you know, like, no, this, this doesn't represent Alberta, like, this, this person who says offensive things, like, that's, no, we're not all about that. W- w- what we're about is silently funneling power towards uh, uh, oppressive and violent institutions and, and using... Uh, using the mechanisms of the system to, you know, implicitly support um, hatred and racial violence. We're not about coming out there and being crass about it <laughs> anyways. Oh yeah. And that's exactly, he, he, remember when he, he was like, uh, I don't know. I He was, he was saying like the, the biggest problem uh, that we face today is the lack of decorum in the public square. Oh
0: yeah. 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 yeah.
1: So yeah. yes, totally. That's, yeah he'd be, he'd be the totally totally the person to um, to uh, condemn Daniel Smith or Trump uh, or pe- yeah because of uh, because I mean, of their demeanor and behavior rather than yeah. anything that they represent
0: or, or any any policies or any 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 of the real ramifications right yeah. um, because there there definitely are um, very clear um impacts that happen when yeah conservative governments like um the ones that Smith has been in and the ones that are basically being planned right now um people lose their benefits um people lose their jobs just there's so many different negative aspects when um our, our governments basically shrink and absolve themselves of any responsibility except towards shareholders and businesses, essentially. So if that isn't your biggest concern, or if your biggest concern is uh, polarization, how people are talking about politics, and not the fact that you know people can't afford to eat, people can't afford to buy houses... Mental illness is spreading across the province, and there are very few recourses for people to turn to. I says a lot. I think it says a lot if that's the focus. Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. So then, what are your. When's the next uh, provincial election? I guess it's next it's, year, right? It's in so, the spring. Yeah. Um, it's pretty soon. I mean, yeah. What are your. Uh, how do you think things are
0: likely to play out? There's not a lot of time before the election, but there still is enough where there might be a situation that leans things in the direction of Rachel Notley and the NDP. But I really think that Alberta is um, is Danielle Smith's province to lose and... Um, I feel like they're gonna. The UCP is probably gonna form government again, and if the NDP are lucky, they might um, make that government a minority government. But um, I really don't think the NDP have offered um, a vision. I don't know. I don't think they've offered people something to vote for. I think they spend they spent a lot of time criticizing Jason Kenney, and then when he resigned they pivoted to basically doing the same thing with um, Danielle Smith. And most people know why the conservatives aren't great and they still vote for them. So if as a left alternative, you are basically just giving them more reasons why they aren't good and not a very clear, um, very um, impactful platform that people can connect to and see how those policies will change their lives if that's not what you're doing then i think it's a very easier election for them to lose so yeah ndp will lose i i I wouldn't be surprised by that Um, i saw people sharing
1: some photos comparing uh, some, some photos from like campaign political photos from ontario comparing like doug ford you know hugging small business owners and like you know, getting out there, celebrating with them, and then comparing that with, like, an NDP campaign ad where it's just, like, Mm. some uh, um, politicians sitting there with, like, their masks on, looking at the camera, like, we're going to make restaurants safe again or something. And it's kind of just like, well, what do you think is going to resonate? Like, this is clearly why it's not, like, resonating with people. And here in Alberta, um, you know, Jason Kenney was able to find success by... Even though he's, you know, also a pretender, um, you know, he was able to uh, find success in um, presenting himself as someone who's more in touch, uh, especially in contrast to a progr- um, the old, you know, PC party, which God. had become very, like, elite-based and technocratic and... Um, You know, by uniting the the party into the UCP, they kind of like brought the more grassroots elements into the fold or leaned into that, and then were able to coalesce it. And ever since then, the NDP has just leaned hard. uh, By contrast, into that like expert, elite, technocratic approach, Um, and I think it. uh, I don't. I don't know if uh, Daniel Smith. Is someone who it will su- successfully continue to lean into the more like you know grassroots of the people kind of um, well. She said stance.
0: that she said that she's going to be more of a rural. Uh, premier, yeah, yeah, right? but you yeah.
1: can you can say it. It's it's more I guess just whether people actually intuit that. Mm, yeah. Um, but uh, for sure the NDP aren't going in that direction at all, oh. and. Um, I did some right, like I did some some work for the NDP the last election cycle where okay, yeah. I had just done a bunch of videos, and that's how I met Trent actually, right? Oh, okay. Um, nice. I just I had just done like a, a bunch of videos of different people's like stories, whether it was like a student or like a nurse or you know like a family,
0: yeah, um,
1: like like Trent, right? Um, and it was just it was just like yeah, like a bunch of stories of like different people, um, and then. Uh, they um, the ads that they chose to put like a lot of like ad spend behind were like the ones of her and all her like white friends running in the river valley because um, they that's more the image they wanted to present of their party um, as opposed to like the people that like live here, right? So um, and, and, and yeah, I, th- I think that just that um, is just consistent with kind of the the same messaging that they're running with now
0: Mm -hmm. no no it really really is and what you said before about this expert um reliance like i'm pretty sure i saw a tweet um earlier today um from notley you know specifically saying you know we're a party of science and we're going to lean on experts Mm -hmm. and um that's all nice and fine but um there's you know millions of people in this province that um, have no connection to any meaningful political vision, have, I think, almost no expectation that politics is going to impact their life in a positive way um, and are probably pretty cynical and checked out from um, the political system altogether. So if you are going to um, ignore that reality completely and chase after political strategies that um, are clearly crafted by, you know, a very small group of people that are interested in winning votes in Calgary. Um, I just think it's such a short sighted and such a, um, I don't even know how to put it. I just feel like it's, it's just useless politics.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. One, one last thing we should probably just quickly mention here is, you know the recent announcement that the provincial government was going to be um, providing uh, what is it 100 that 187 million dollars um, across Alberta, so not just Edmonton, but I think there was something like 70 million going to Edmonton mm-hmm. um, for specifically for addictions um, and uh, homelessness funding. Yeah. Um. So, uh, you know, good news uh, at least. Um, at least as it would seem on the surface, and this has been, you know, celebrated by politicians um, uh, like like Sohi. Emergj um, uh, Sohi says this needed funding will make life better for the many Edmontonians struggling with homelessness, substance use disorder, mental health crises, poverty, and internet and intergenerational trauma and is a true testament of the power of collaboration. Today is a good day for our city. So that's that's great news, right? Right Omar?
0: You know, yeah, I guess I guess it is depending on um you know what what angle you look at the this announcement from, but Well,
1: I'm looking at it from the angle that Every time the issue of police funding has been brought up throughout this year, the answer from politicians like Sohi or even like Michael Jans gave us in the last episode mm-hmm. is that yeah, we would all like to, you know, defund police or reduce the responsibility that's on police, but we have a lack of provincial funding to address the root causes of of crimes such as mental health crises Mm -hmm. addictions uh homelessness so because we don't have that kind of support from the province uh, we have to keep funding the police or giving them more money and then what we see here is that the province announces 187 million dollars specifically for addictions and homelessness funding it's celebrated by Sohi specifically that this will help Edmontonians struggling with houselessness, substance use disorder, mental health crises, poverty, intergenerational trauma, and then right after that, they uh, voted to raise the police
0: budget again. It uh, when you when you told me that for the first time, you really. Um, I, I didn't think of it that way, but I think it really puts it in a in a very um, very clear way and showing how,, uh, I guess, how guarded the police budget is and how removed it is from the logic that's used to um, defend it to begin with. But even thinking back to 2020, And that summer when the police chief was going in front of council during these hearings and saying things like um, 30% of um, police work is social work Mm -hmm. and, you know, all these mental health calls are being answered by the police. So we've seen hundreds, you know, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars being invested into the sector. But, yeah, like you said, police budget keeps going up. So it it, ra- it raises a lot of questions but it also answers a lot of questions too right yeah
1: and i think like you know i'm obviously very cynical that this money is actually going to go towards um yeah you, know, you know whatever you you call it, like community supports yeah. or that it's actually going to benefit people i think just because we know what the political stance of our provincial government is um you know and uh I don't I don't think that's really what we're saying. I think um or it's not that's not really what uh, like what I'm saying. Like I'm not saying the the province giving this money or making this announcement um actually uh, actually is going to um, you know, solve all of those issues. Absolutely not. But it's just uh but it but it's being celebrated as if it is by the same politicians that said um, we couldn't uh, direct money away from police towards uh, the root causes of crime because we don't have support from the province. So it's like these politicians are not being honest about one of those things, right? Either they're celebrating this thing um, when it's not actually going to um, address those uh, those issues or the whole thing about, well, we just need support from the province for these issues and that's why we can't direct money away from the police budget. Um, or, 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 yeah, so I, yeah, they're dishonest about one of those things, right? Um, so, it's kind of like, which is it? And clearly, their rhetoric is just directed... Yeah, like you said, to kind of safeguard the police budget or safeguard that status quo of um, kind of caving to uh, increasing asks from from the police. So anyways, yeah, this was um, I saw, you know, not just politicians, but just like a lot of people um, celebrating this announcement. And um, I think these are just some kind of logical follow up questions that, um, you know, I thought we should pose here. And that we should probably be putting towards um, politicians.
0: No, absolutely. And um, I think it's also a moment worth remembering, too. Um, when we look around us in two to three years in this city, um, will we have seen meaningful change um, when it comes to homelessness, when it comes to addictions, mental illness, Um I don't want to be cynical, but I don't think we will. And I don't think um, that $187 million um, is, is enough to, to bring about that kind of um, systemic, meaningful change that people are acting like it will. But, um, you know, that's, that's for the city and the province to decide how honest they want to be about how serious um, these problems are. And, and how serious they are about actually um, working towards solutions.
1: Yeah, I think it's not whether it's enough, um, whether that's like a, yeah. a, a high enough amount of yeah, money. It's th- almost th- just like what that's going to what's support, it going to do, what right? policy right? that yeah. companies.
0: It, you could triple it if all of it goes towards paying for salaries at, you know, five different nonprofits, yeah. that's, yeah, it, it it would, it wouldn't make a difference. Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, and of course what we've seen a lot too is just so many, um, you know, services are made to be under the purview of the police. And we, you know, we talked about yeah. this in, in the past too, everything that um, the city announced additional funding for uh, in the immediate aftermath of the two killings in Chinatown was like oh this thing that's in partnership with police this thing that's mm-hmm. under the under the purview of um of police and um yeah so i i mean it's it's a lot of things other than just just the amount but um yeah i think we're we're not saying that this actually is the solution we're just trying to challenge how politicians are celebrating it but not uh not then defunding the police like they said they would once we got this kind of solution that they're celebrating it as
0: no absolutely
1: yeah awesome okay well anyways uh yeah yeah a lot happened since the last episode i think we kind of got into a lot of stuff here and um Yeah, you know, if you made it to the end, thanks for listening. Uh, Let us know if there's um, any other thoughts that you had, anything that you think we're, you know, off base on. uh, Or if, um, yeah, if you've got any, you know, suggestions or things you might want to discuss in the future or things we should be paying more attention to.